Welcome back to the flip side. Galen Clavio here along with Brian Moritz. Back once again discussing things of great importance. And, you know, it's it could be a red-letter show. We might lose all of our audience members with today's I, show. I, I think so. I mean, I, I just as I just said on Twitter, you know, we are, we are addressing our most controversial topic this week. And, um, you know, yeah, I think it's, I think it's going to generate some buzz. It's going to generate some heat. It's timely because the, uh, the product in question is just starting to make the rounds. Um, and, and so I think that, um, I'm just worried. I'm worried that America isn't ready for this conversation. Well, 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 I am throwing this all on you because you're the one who made, came up with the topic last week, uh, last week when we were chatting and, um, I actually, I actually don't have a very strong opinion on it. Um, mainly because I have a lack of experience with, with it in question. That's so, also, we need to discuss that. But before we yes. get, before we get to the food part, what is right. the drink part? You go first. I'm actually, I have our first repeat in our seven episodes. I have the last of the, uh, Great South Bay Blood Orange Pale Ale. Ah, very good. I went with something a little more traditional. Uh, which was uh, the Dogfish Head 60-Minute IP. Oh, always a classic. Now, we just got Ballast Point in town. Very nice. But I didn't make it to the liquor store yesterday, so I think it's already gone already. Oh, yeah. Uh, but I will be getting more. It will be coming back. So that's very exciting. Nice. Very nice. That's interesting. It's always fun when beers get like become a commodity. Like we were in we did a, a vacation in Vermont this summer. And a buddy of mine, uh, is a very big, uh, craft beer guy as well, said, if you can find me Hetty Topper up there, you will be heavily comp- compensated. We happened to be in Stowe's where we went on our first night. And that was the day they actually have on the Hetty Topper website, uh, when it's delivered to each like store in Vermont. Right. And we got there, it was probably about four or five o'clock. It was right around dinner time, maybe even early dinner. Not only was everything sold out, there were stores in town, beer stores that had signs, handwritten signs like "No Hetty Topper sold out." No Hetty right. Topper. Basically, don't bother. That's um, funny. Yeah, and I've never had it, so well, I'm interested to try it sometime. It's like you know, uh, you know, a lot of uh, of my media buddies they go up to Wisconsin for you know cover a basketball game, cover a football game, sure. and, and there's always a, a beer run of New Glarus that comes back hmm. with them. Which, okay. of course, nobody ever remembers to pick me up any of those. But, <laughs> but on the flip side, like, you know, my, uh, me and a friend of mine, uh, whenever we're in the South, we'll pick up copious amounts of sweet water and terrapin and bring those back. All right. So yeah. I, I know what you mean. It's, it's interesting how that process works, the, the commodification yeah. of certain types of beer or certain brands of beer. But, right. Yeah. But uh, no, what we wanted to talk about to start with today was uh, controversial and and something uh-huh. that uh, I think is is interesting to think about in terms of what we value uh, in desserts. But uh, <laughs> you know, as as most people know, as you've walked through grocery stores or into grocery stores, I don't know, do they do that in upstate New York? Do they set up in front of the grocery stores? Oh yes. Okay. Oh, yeah. You know, but to Girl Scout cookies were just distributed. My wife bought several boxes of, of various types. And, you okay. know, it's, it's great because it helps the girls out. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I mean, they, they get to, you know, look like they know what they're doing to their scout leaders and all that, all that fun stuff. But, you know, what I've found is that people go wild over these Girl Scout cookies. And mm-hmm. I really don't think they're very good. Like, I, I think, if you go down the line, first of all, how much are the boxes, Katie? 
the boxes are about $4 a pop. Now, for the $4, okay. you get, like, a smaller box than you would get if you went to the store and bought, like, a package of Chips Ahoy or, or short, right. bread, you know, whatever. So the, the, yeah. the, so the boxes are smaller. There's fewer cookies in them. They're very caloric. In fact, I would say that the, your, your amount of calories per cookie is actually a worse ratio than if you got a more, a larger, more mass produced cookie. And, but the big kicker to me is that none of the cookies really taste good. Like, they're okay, some of them. But, you know, like Thin Mints, for example. Like, people go wild about Thin Mints. And Thin Mints are just, they're just, they're not well put together. I mean, they're kind of chalky to some degree. And they, they, um, if you're looking for a cookie that's got a mixture of chocolate and mint, it, you can do much better. Like I've had much better on the open marketplace. They've got these things. <laughs> they've got these things called tagalongs, which are basically yes. Yes. you've had those before, right? Yeah. You know, the the peanut butter with the chocolate, and it's like this is all right, but man, I've had very good peanut butter and chocolate cookies in my day, and and that's not one of them. Um, they've got these Samoas, which, you know, my wife just polished a box off, you know, which is crisp cookies coated in caramel, sprinkled with toasted coconut and striped with jar- dark chocolatey coating. Mm-hmm. Really not good. Like really, really kind of like the coconut is, is very stale tasting and it just, it, there's, it's not a good ensemble. So you go down the list, like I could go through every Girl Scout cookie and I could find a commercially available analog that is a cheaper B, tastes better, and C, uh, acquirable throughout the course of the calendar year. So, you know, I feel like the scarcity is part of it, but I don't even get that because, like, there's plenty of things that only come around, like, once in a blue moon, and we don't go wild over them, particularly if they're not, like, a really mediocre product, which is what seemed to be uh, what you seem to have in Girl Scout cookies. Okay, so I'm looking at the uh, at the official list from GirlScouts.org of the Meet the Cookies. So we're looking at all the different varieties. Um, so you got up top, and they and they really do go in order the way they list them here of like well known to not. So you start off at top with the Thin Mints and your Samoas, which are really kind of, I mean, they're they're the they're the Jordan and Pippin of the of the Girl Scout cookie. I mean, it's right. really everything everything else is everything else is you know uh, Horace Grant comparatively speaking. <laughs> So you got your tag along, which would probably be your Horace Grant in this um, in in, the, in this analogy. The trefoils, the shortbread cookies, which come in the little girl, the little shortbread with the Girl Scout logo. Which, which you know, I'd rather instead of the Girl Scout logo, I'd rather they came with flavor, but they don't. Wow, wow. Um, yes, yeah, send all hate mail to at Dr. GC. Bring it. This is not so. the hill I am willing to die on. Okay. Right, and then, well, and then I'm looking down here, and then they have Dosi Dose, which is a peanut butter sandwich. They have like all these new flavors that come uh, come up with. So you got the Dosi Dose, the peanut butter sandwich, cranberry citrus crisp, which I'm sorry is not a thing, uh, <laughs> lemonades, raw raw raisins. These are all trademarked and, and copyright, by the way. Savannah smiles. Thanks a lot. What? Okay, I'm reading these obviously for the first time. Thanks a lot. They're little cookies. They look like shortbread cookies with a little chocolate on the bottom, and they say I've thank never you. Never heard of thanks a lot. Nope. Uh, Toffee tastics, which sounds like something you get friendlies, and trios, which looks like like an oatmeal peanut butter chocolate chip okay. type cookie. Okay, so really, I mean, really, when we're talking Girl Scout cookies, we're talking the four: Thin Mint, Samoas, Trefoils, and the Tagalongs. Those are those those are kind of yeah. the four. The, the the four that we're talking about, and you're right on the size of it, the box. As I'm looking, I'm as I'm thinking about 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 them in the past. They're like 
probably smaller than the size of my MacBook Pro computer. Like, oh, there they are. Like, here's my phone, and right. here's the box. <laughs> like, I mean, you can see this. Is, I mean, I have a Note yeah, Four, which is a relatively big phone, but this is a this is a, a reasonable comp composition yeah, here. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you do have you have the comically large phone, but that's a comically large box of cookies to go with it. Comically small um, box of cookies. Comically small box of cookies. Thank you. Um, it's interesting, and you know, I raised this at this topic to my wife. And she thought about it for about, I don't know, 15 seconds and like, yeah, I agree with you. You know, you, you being you on, on it. Um, and it's funny because we got recently, uh, Oreo makes, a makes Oreo thins. Yes. So they're like, like, they're like basically crispy cookie instead of the, the full size one. And they have mint ones. Right. And we had those and those, as you say, a commercially viable alternative. They are, they blow thin mints out of the water. They're better than thin mints. Right. Um, and look, I mean, I mean, part of the problem is with, with slagging. Uh, part of the problem, I think, why people don't slag on Girl Scout cookies is because it feels like you're slagging on the Girl Scouts or on the girls themselves. And obviously, we're not, not. doing that. You know, you know, it, it. You know, they're raising money. They're doing good things for their. They're raising money for their troops. They're doing good things, and obviously, that's wonderful. And it's funny. What made this interesting was that. Um, the day that we started tweeting about this was the day that my daughter, who's five and a half and in kindergarten, said out of the blue that she wants to join Girl Scouts. I'm pretty sure because some friends of hers in her class are in Girl Scouts and, and, and now it's a thing. And so, you know, I got to be careful what I say because this is going to be my this is this is my merchandise probably in a year or two. Right. So, you know, I've got to be careful, you know, on it. But it's but I mean, I do find the the. the the kind of cult of Girl Scout cookies to be an interesting thing, which is, I think, what we, what you kind of want to get into. Like, of course, the mom's going to be selling them and the kid's going to be selling them and, you know, you go for it. But there does seem to be this, this weird kind of cult around Girl Scout cookies, which is interesting because, yeah, it's, you know. It's just a subpar product. Like, I mean, they're, they're, they're really not different than they were 25 years ago, and they were a subpar product then. You know, what they remind me of, really, and I don't know, I'd have to do some research on, like, when Girl Scout cookies actually came into being. All over it. Go for it. But um, you like how that worked, ladies and gentlemen, where, like, I said, <laughs> I would need to do research, but really Brian's the one talking and or typing, and I'm just talking here. But um, it, it, you know how you're about the same age as me. You know how things in the 70s and 80s weren't very good? Like, like, you know, like mass produced food wasn't very good generally. Toys that were mass produced generally weren't very good. And, and we're in like a golden age of like specialized, really high quality products, I feel like these days, right. you know, whether it's toys or whether it's food or whatever. But these taste like something that was invented in like the late sixties. This would have been like considered a pretty good cookie back then because everything else tastes like, like crap. Well, that's great, except that was 50 years ago almost now. And, you know, things have moved forward. You know, if I was, if I owned Nabisco, what I would do is I would take my Oreo division and I'd be like, look, we're going to make Girl Scout Oreos. We're going to make like five or six different types of, of Girl Scout Oreos. We're going to sell them to the Girl Scouts at like a discount rate. We're going to allow them to make significantly more profit margin than they probably make on the pieces of crap that they're selling right now. And it'll look great on our tax returns. It'll look great in the community. And we'll drive Girl Scout cookies out of business. It'd be awesome. Okay. So, um, so, you, so, 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 as a capitalist, what you're trying to do is drive the Girl Scouts 
No, no, you you didn't hear what I said. I said we're going to sell Oreos to the Girl Scouts and let them uh, sell. So actually, what I'm doing I, is using capitalism. It. I'm actually giving the Girl Scouts a higher profit margin while also driving an inferior competitor out of the marketplace. Gotcha. All right. Well, according to uh, the Girl Scout, the official Girl Scouts website, uh, the very f- the co- uh, cookies to finance troops began in 1917. Uh, five years into the history of the Girl Scouts, it started in. With the mistletoe troop in Muskogee, Oklahoma. Wow. Um, and then the, it looks like the, what became the, the thin mint came out of 1950, in 1951, there were three varieties. Sandwich shortbread, which what I assume is the, uh, now the modern trefoil, and, uh, chocolate mints, now known as thin mints. Um, and so yeah, we're dating back to 1951 with these. So, um, so, you know, okay, well that kind of fits my theory then. Yeah. Like that, that's, so, I don't have a look, I, and, and it's easy, like we do in America now. When you come out against something, people assume that you're against something much bigger or something that's attached to it. I'm not right. against the Girl Scouts. I'm not against the Girl Scouts selling cookies. I think it's great. I would rather, though, write the Girl Scouts that are across the street from me a check for thirty dollars and give it to them and be like, "Here's money. I'm going to go ahead and take the rest of my money and go buy good cookies at the grocery <laughs> store." You know that. Yeah, no, that's a that, that that's a really interesting and good point. And you know, I've heard other people say this point too. And it comes with like the like five races that you do to raise money for hospitals or hospice or right. cancer research or whatever like that. Like, can I just write you a write, write, donate donate thirty dollars instead of having to sponsor you and in, in your run and then hear about your run all this time? Um, I mean, I mean, and and you know, the idea of nostalgia I think is really interesting and what that you brought up too. You know, I'm sure that there's some nostalgia to loving this. You know, sure. I sold them and loved them and, you know, but, you know, the things you loved when you were a kid were never, are never as good now that, you know, when you have them as grown up. Um, you know, and it's funny you mentioned like you were talking about food from the 70s and 80s. I mean, I think that extends to culture and entertainment as well. I mean, we binge watched Fuller House this weekend in my house and, um, <laughs> and I will, you know, enjoying it for what it what it was yeah we were never on the full house is a great show full house was a terrible show but it was a cute show and you know we were the right age when it hit um but it but what's interesting about that about about the about the entertainment is like that level of show that full house was and to extent fuller house was this past on netflix that's about the level of those of the shows that are on Disney Channel. You got your Good Luck Charlies or like you know, yeah. uh, the, those types of shows. You know, perfectly inoffensive, you know, family shows, which you know are are you know not necess- they're not necessarily good, but they're not bad, and they're not you know there's nothing wrong with them. And you know, it's like you think of you, you think back, like you can watch a lot of the cartoons that were on when we were kids that are on we we they have a, a section on hulu that has a lot of the old uh the old cartoons and I, and we've i watched some of them with my daughter and they're like and i've watched them like these aren't good like <laughs> not not you know they have like the kitschy i remember watching the value but the stuff that's out there now that you know as a parent you want to roll your eyes your instinct is kind of roll your eyes at it's actually so much better done the quality mm-hmm. The production level, the the, the writing, the, it's actually somewhat entertaining uh, to to watch, much better than like you know the Ghostbusters cartoon that came out in the mid eighties. That one was really terrible. That I, it's, um, 
worth watching it now. It's, but I, but I, I, you know, but it's like a, it's hit or miss. Like I, I actually enjoyed and still enjoy when I see them on replay some of the Saturday morning cartoons I watched as a kid. You know, mm-hmm. I, I felt that. Um, you know, now I'm blind. Well, I thought like the Gummy Bears, for instance, that was actually a pretty well written show. Huh. And a pretty, I thought it was a pretty, it was a very well animated show. It was a well voiced show. I mean, it weren't like pushing any major boundaries or anything like that, but right. it was, it was fine for what it was. Um, you know, and there were others on Saturday mornings that, uh, you know, that were, were better than others. You know, the, the original right. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles animated series was actually pretty good. Yes, the, it was. DuckTales was a very Woo-hoo. good show. Yeah. That's you know, and, and even, even, um, even Chippendale's Rescue Rangers, even though mm. it annoyed the hell out of me at the time. Right. Was a pretty good show. I mean, I'm, I'm cheating because these were Disney afternoon and not Saturday right. morning, but, right. but there were, but like, a, there were Anim- others that were terrible, without yeah, question. Yeah, an- I mean, Animaniacs is very, very good. Yes. Um, and that Pinky, was Warner Brothers. But Pinky and the out, Brain. Pinky and the Brain, which came out of that, yeah. So, interestingly enough, I was continuing my research into Girl Scout cookies. There are two gluten-free varieties this year. The Trios, which are chocolate chips nestled in a gluten-free peanut butter oatmeal cookie, and the Toffee Tastic, which is a rich buttery cookie with sweet golden toffee bits. We need so, a whole, we need to do a whole show on the folly of gluten free at some point. Well, well, what's it? Well, well, <laughs> well, touchy touchy subject because I have friends who have a celiac daughter. So the gluten different. Yes, of course, the gluten free, the the trendy gluten free, as opposed yes. to the actual gluten free. Yes, that that is that'll be that'll be a future episode too. Um, so I mean, any 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 other uh, parts of Americana you want to shred and destroy and discredit right now? Well, you know? I'm I'm always willing to take a, a stab at something. No, nothing else really. Although I guess the, our next topic, in a, in an oblique way, does kind of attack a particular mentality that we have in Americana and the way that we cover things in Americana. So I guess so, yeah. Uh, so we'll we'll go ahead and jump over to that as sure. uh, we leave cookies and we look at the way that we talk about players and coaches in sports coverage. So big big transition, I know, but that's what you listen to the flip side for, folks. You don't Absolutely. listen to the flip side for, like, the same bland topics over and over again. So we were having this conversation on Twitter. It was you and me and Matt Zimmerman, and I think maybe one or two other people hopped in on it as well. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I, I made a, an idle comment during – one of the games I was watching, I think it was actually the Purdue Maryland game this week okay. in uh, college basketball. You know where they were, they were there was criticisms being levied by the broadcasters about uh, the players and the players' inability to execute a particular play. And I made a statement about how you know it's it, it still surprises. It didn't really surprise me, but still surprises me how you know people feel completely free to criticize players when they see poor play or, or what they perceive to be a poor play, uh, but don't criticize coaches when they see poor strategy or bad strategy. Mm-hmm. And um, so this ended up kind of evolving into a long uh, conversation about how coverage works, particularly in college basketball, and mm-hmm. and how access dictates that and whether that should really matter within the confines of, of how we talk about certain things. And right. so, you know, one of the things that you mentioned, and I think Matt also mentioned this, was that, you know, people feel um, maybe less than qualified to comment on strategy or 
or, you know, tactics or things like that that might come out of coaches, but they seem to feel perfectly fine with commenting on, on athletic plays and things mm-hmm. like that, which I think is kind of odd because, right. um, to some degree, the, the writer, the commentator is closer, uh, in overall stature to the coach than they are to the players. Right. Um, yet it's, it seems to be that the coach is more or less off limits. Uh, for most people when they're conversing about these things and the players are not considered to be off limits. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I mean, it's a really interesting and kind of a layered topic here. My, my thought on that, and this is, you know, kind of an evolving, an evolving topic as we were talking about it. And we are, I think for purposes of this conversation, important to note, we're talking almost primarily about college and college basketball. We'll limit the conversation yes. to that because we're, we're bringing up, uh, ideas of, you know, I think it's changing and evolving in, in some areas in the pro, but definitely in college sports. What I meant by that point was, I think that, you know, while the average writer and broadcaster, and that's an interesting distinction we'll come back to, but I think the average media member, while they're kind of closer in both ability, I guess, and definitely age to the coach, I think that in general, my, my, my point was, it's very easy to say, wow, he, to, to look at, look at a bad shot and say, wow, he shouldn't have, what was he thinking? He shouldn't have taken that shot. Or, wow, he let his guy blow right by him on defense. He wasn't even trying. Versus, wow, what was the coach thinking not subbing that guy out here? Or what was the coach thinking not going to a press or, or not going to zone and staying in, in man to man? Um, and I think all those questions are, are vital. But I just, I think the natural inclination is when we see a bad play or, or we, or we see a mistake, it's very easy to kind of point the finger and notice the player making it. And that's an, that's kind of at an obvious first level. And I think that going to the, 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 the strategic level of it, um, you know, part, and, and in part, I, I think that, that that's a little bit hidden. You know, I think they're in, in, a lot of sports coverage and a lot of the way we talk about sports, there is a, a thought that, you know, players, you know, you know, ultimate responsibility in a way lies with the play, in a weird way lies with the players. And I don't know if I'm saying this right, but kind of like the, the idea of, well, well, you know, you make the shot, you miss the shot, you know, whatever sure. play coach calls, you make the, you know, it's kind of the responsibilities on the player there. Um, and so I think there's that, you know, the access point that Matt and I were bringing up, um, you know, Matt and I are both former sports journalists, uh, Matt Zimmerman, who's t- Dr. Matt Zimmerman teaches at Auburn, former sports reporter, colleague of ours. And, uh, and so it's kind of a point of both of our research that, you know, access to sources and in- to information is such a critical part of what we do or did what we did and what we do as sports journalists. And that, um, a- especially at the collegiate level, the coach is such an important figure. I mean, that's the the most important relationship. A lot of ways you have as a college beat writer is to the coach um, in terms of getting information, in terms of daily interviews, um, in terms of a lot of times access to players because at, at the collegiate level, it's the coach who sets the rules for when you can talk to players, who you can talk to them, what, pl- what what's open, what's not at the pro level. It's definitely set at the league or the team level. The coach has less direct impact on that and so i think there's there there's a a more natural human inclination to 
not bite the hand that feeds you. And, and, and I think that that, you know, that's one of those things that gets a bad, that, that looks really awful, especially when we talk about it academically. But it's also, you know, I, I used to look at it in my beat writer days as very pragmatically. Like I would not be afraid to criticize a coach, but I always felt like in a way I needed, and part of this is my personality, to kind of save the bullets, like not to call them out on bad strategy in a game. But if I'm, but so that, you know, call them out on like they're running a corrupt program, which I covered. So, you know, when it comes to, when it comes down to that big, uh, you know, you know, it, it's that weird balance you have of you want to be critical, yeah. you want to be critical, you want to be honest, but at the same time, he's still the guy you got to call and find out when practice is and, you know, tell you the truth on whether the guy's hurt or not. It's such a weird thing that as a beat writer you have. I get that. I really do. I mean, I'm not oblivious to, to that. The perception of that reality, if that sounds right. Yeah. Um, but, but okay, so, so two things that I would throw up as counters. First of all, a, a lot of this attitude has been around for a while in terms of, you know, of, of the way that sports writers and reporters and broadcasters have approached covering coaches. Sure. Uh, but a lot of it comes from an era when I think the the relationship between coaches and players was different when mm-hmm. coaches were certainly much less well paid than they are now, particularly in college basketball. And you know, I, I feel like with the amount of money that is paid to college basketball coaches at this point, there there almost needs to be a higher level of accountability in how they're doing their jobs on the floor. Okay. Um, not just is their program corrupt or not corrupt. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, when a guy's making, I don't know what the average salary is in, in like the Atlantic 10, but you know, in okay. the big, in the big 10, you know, guy, average guy's going to be making, you know, a million and a half, $2 million a year. I mean, that's, sure. a, that's a lot of money right. for nobody to question or very few people to question your your day-to-day strategic operations on the floor, at least not in the official media channels. Right. Um, so to me, that seems that seems like a, lay- a layer of cushion that really isn't warranted anymore. Um, as far as, you know, biting the hand that feeds you and, and gives you information and so forth, you know, the, the response that I generally give is, yes, that's true, but... There's been there's become such an adversarial relationship anyway between reporters and college basketball programs and college sports programs in general and mm-hmm. college sports programs have have really given themselves over to this idea that oh well we don't really need to give you access certainly not in the way that we gave you access before because mm-hmm. we can push most of that information out ourselves directly to the fans so you're mm-hmm. really as a reporter or a broadcaster you're somewhat ancillary to the process. Um, so it's like, okay, so we're being deferential to you and we're giving you all of this cushion and what exactly are we getting in return for it? That's a good point. Yeah. And that's, and that's, you know, you're seeing that especially, you know, you know, not to get too deep into the woods of our work, but like my research has shown that like at the college level access is awful for reporters and just getting, getting much, much worse and worse. Um, and okay. So, 
let me let me let me reel you this because we've been we, we and even on the Twitter conversation it was kind of general. But what kind of so what are the specific kind of day to day strategic decisions that you want Tom Crean to be held, held accountable for? Okay, not just, <laughs> let's keep it general. <laughs> okay, um, okay. So I know we'll be here six hours. You know, this, it, it will definitely be the Springsteen well, podcast. Look, here, here's here, here's the thing. I, I, you know, without going into too many specifics and without you know speaking of specific coaches or things like that, I, sure. I think that. Um, the reality is we, we, I feel like it's, we know more about the game of basketball now. It's a lot more quantified. It's a lot more understandable, um, because, mm-hmm. you know, there aren't, there not only are there numbers available, but we also have so many more data points for individual players, for styles of play, for all of these different things. And, you know, and, and with players, it dates all the way back in some cases to like middle school. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. so we, we know, we know to some degree what you're dealing with. And we know, yeah, I, I've always felt it's possible for any, uh, any journalist, any reporter, any broadcaster from, you know, from basketball to soccer to American football to whatever to be able to have, uh, with study a very firm grasp of what's going on on the floor at any given time. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm talking about, you know, is, is things like, you know, fouling strategy, uh, you know, certain mm-hmm. strategies relating to shooting, the inability of your team to break a press. That's what, that's what started the whole thing was, you know, okay. Purdue was being pressed by Maryland at the end of the game and literally did not know what to do with the basketball on okay. like five consistent possessions. Okay. Like, you know, consecutive possessions. Like it was, it was amazing to watch. It looked like. So this is, this is not just like, like a good press trapping guys and making it for. No, this was a, this was a team that looked like legitimately like they had no clue what okay. to do when pressured in, 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 you know, the backcourt. It was just crazy. And so, um, things along those lines, you, you know, it makes you scratch your head and you're like, okay, you know, when I do hear people ask questions about it in the press, they're very ginger about the way that they ask those questions. And again, I get why, because you presented that perspective very clearly earlier on when we were talking. But, but to me, it's like, why be ginger about that? You know, I mean, part of, part of where we're at right now in, in the coverage of, of basketball, and this is both college and professional, is I think we've, we've uncovered so many new things about the game that are available to everybody now. And there's so much coverage of games that if you watch enough basketball games and if you understand strategy, uh, you know, which I don't think I, I've never felt coaching in most sports. Maybe, maybe football is the one exception because it is so, like minutely detailed, but mm. but in almost every other sport, it's you're you're just not talking about rocket science. I mean, you just right. it is not that complicated. Like if right. if reporters can cover economic policy, if yeah. reporters can cover you know um, the 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 logistics of the city, like you know sewer system. Like surely we can figure out how to cover basketball strategy. Like you know, we're we're not right. talking about things that are that complicated. So that's the sort of things I'm talking about, though. Is like they're baked into the hardware of sports reporting is this concept that well, you know, any any reporter that that broaches the topic of strategy is like is like touching the third rail, and it's well, like I and I and I just yeah. I, at this stage in this era I don't agree with that. Well, I mean, it, it, it's weird, especially when you when you talk about leading into a game. Coaches get so 
paranoid about strategy because the you know the other team's going to read it and know what they're going to do or how they're going to attack it, which always made me laugh because like you know I covered uh, the A10 when John Chaney's teams John Chaney was still coaching Temple, he always played a matchup zone. I mean it was you know you played Temple, you played a matchup sure. zone. So okay, you're gonna you're gonna either work the ball around or you're gonna have to shoot a lot of threes. You know, everyone knew that it was not, you know, I had coaches, you know, uh, you know, some coaches sit down with a stat sheet once and show me like you can see why they're good because they take opponents take a lot of threes and they don't make a lot of them. Okay, explains it. Um, It's and it's funny you talk about understanding basketball. Um, You know, I remember and this is very vivid to me and it's probably like one of the kind of like, you know, one of the telling things about, you know, how I approach basketball coverage, which is weird, is I, I've been in film rooms with coaches as they break down, as they watched film or like been on a bus as they studied film. And, you know, this is at the time I was covering basketball every day and I thought I knew the game pretty well and I do know the game pretty well. But to hear them break down a film tape, it is wow. You know, they, they, they really do see the game and see and are looking at very, very different things. Um, and so I, I, I got a lot of respect for best, for basketball sure. coaches watching that and, and, and understanding that. Um, but I, I really like the point you bring up on the access thing. It's like, well, we're not getting much access now. So, you know, what do you, yeah, what do you have to lose in, in, in sort of, you know, a, a, asking about it? And, you know, a lot of the problem is, you know, coaches will either default to that's how we play or, you know, we just didn't execute, which is, of course, code coach code for I called it right. My idiot players just didn't know what to do in a press. And like you said, when you're watching a game now, if you if you know so much basketball is out there and we've been watching it for so long that you can tell the difference between a team that, you know, you know, there's a difference between a team that's not good at it and not prepared for it. Right. You know, teams can be not good for it and like not have good ball handlers or right. like, you know, guys making, you know, the other team forces them into making bad decisions and versus, you know, deer and headlights of what in the Sam Hill is going on. Yeah. Um and yeah, you know, it is it, it's funny especially as you said now with um the analyt, you know, with the growth in analytics and the growth in statistical analysis and, and just all this data that's out there is, you know, it, you know, it's one thing, it's it's fascinating that area of analytics and that data is so interesting to me on a lot of levels. I'm really fascinated by it, especially as it relates to sports journalism and sports coverage. And, you know, I have kind of two pet theories I'm operating with on why so many mainstream big name sports journalists hate analytics. And we'll use analytics as like the yes, catch all the, the, the horrible catch all word. One is just the basic journalists suck at math and hate math. <laughs> I, I really okay. do think that that's a big thing, you know, because you're not you're not dealing with just percentages or number, you know, because you can't, you know, it's funny you you criticize, you know, people criticize statistical analysis and yet answer it with RBIs and home, and batting average, which are statistics. Oh, um, really? So, really? oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. So yeah, of course. So it's that. um it's that um it's that you know it, weird math and you know part of it is you know not understanding probabilities and you know what you know what Nate Silver means when he he says Obama has a seventy five percent chance of you know a seventy five percent chance at reelection. It's not seventy five twenty five. It's you know probabilities and and all that stuff. But I too I think a lot of it is you know this you know the the kind of traditional relation source journalist relationship. And, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, being able to, you know, someone who can statistically analyze, uh, let me back up, a, a marker of journalistic 
legitimacy, to borrow a term from organizational sociology, legitimacy is talk is the, you're having relationships with sources, talking to them, you know, that, that name dropping. And that's a good thing. That's not, not a criticism. That's a good, that's a part of the field. And, you know, that's always been kind of the, the, the marker. That was the early marker when blogs started coming in the, in the, in the area was, well, the, they're writing about their opinion, but I'm in the locker room. I'm there every day. And, you know, that's kind of your mark. And there's some validity to that, but that's also kind of a crutch. And I think that, you know, relying on statistical and using analytics, again, just as a catch-all term, but using analytics now threatens that idea of, well, I'm talking to the coaching and hearing from him what they're doing and why they're doing it. And, and you know, coaches as a source and as an authority figure. And now we have this data that we can maybe say, well, maybe they're not doing the right thing. It's maybe like, they're so, so as an example, like this year, Byron Scott, you know, was coach of the Lakers, right? Mm-hmm. And Byron Scott started the year saying we don't believe in shooting three pointers, basically. Like, right. which the, the entire game is being revolutionized because teams are capitalizing on shooting three pointers in in a way that allows them to be a more efficient manner of scoring than shooting right. two pointers. Right. And like on its face, it is just a ludicrous statement. It it frankly it is it is a statement that should disqualify Byron Scott from coaching an NBA team. Right. And yet at and yet, at any time, especially this year. Yeah. And I mean and granted, I don't know what the local media's reaction was, but I, it seemed like the only people that were making noise about it were was the blogosphere. Right. You know, I, you know that's I have a real problem with that. And look, I, what name me another name me another area of reporting where the assumption seems to be you don't know as much as the person doing the thing, therefore you shouldn't comment on it or shouldn't report like ask questions about the method by which it's being done. Huh. You know, I consistently I can't think of one. Like I'm sure there are isolated cases on of politi- of that have, happening in politics. Uh, you know, whether it's local or even kind of national on that. Um, but yeah, it's the you know, yeah, I can't I can't think of one. And like that, yeah, that Byron Scott example is so. And you know, because as you were saying that, I can think of this, the the kind of cliche story you were right you would write as a sports journalist. You know, the grizzled old school Byron Scott doesn't care for the newfangled NBA and the, and the Golden State Warriors, and you know, kind of you know, grizzled old school. You know, I know I've written the phrase in my career, the lost art of the mid range jumper, which is a know? ludicrous thing on its face. And, and I now, used to talk about it as a broadcaster. Okay. Well, and, Okay, and and I wrote that in 2003, and now in 2016, I recognize it's a ridiculous thing to say. Right. That um, yes, the the, the point being a long range, uh, a 16 foot two pointer is a ludicrous shot because two feet back, you're getting more. It, it's no more efficient than a three pointer with less reward for it's it. Less efficient. Less efficient. Uh, yeah. Um, and uh, look, here's the thing. I wouldn't. It wouldn't bother me. I wouldn't have even brought it up if we didn't have examples from other sports. And other cultures where strategy is actively questioned on a regular basis. We're talking about soccer as an example. Like soccer coaches, soccer managers get shredded for their strategic choices on a regular basis. And I mean, granted, that's pro soccer in England and in Italy and in places like that, but it's still, it's, it's baked into that culture of reporting. Mm -hmm. And the, and so it seems odd that in just in, frankly, in this pursuit, that we can't talk about college basketball coaches and their strategy because of 
access or something like that. And, and yet, and, and yet, in all these other areas, it's yeah. like this is fair game. Yeah, and it's funny because you know one of the the counter examples that I have to it again, it's pro is you know my beloved Buffalo Bills right now, who um, Rex Ryan is being an idiot and um, the and talking about how you know he inherited a defense that was really good when Jim Schwartz was a defensive coordinator. The defense tanked this year. He brought in his brother who was an even worse defensive coordinator this past year than he was with the Bills. And he made some comment at the Combine last week, or yeah, it was last week, on how the Bills' defense this year, like, we were half pregnant this year, now we're going to be full pregnant, talking about his his system. Um, and we'll forget, we'll, we'll, we'll leave the ludicrousness of the pregnant comment aside, but... You know, the, the, you know, to their credit, and I have a lot of friends in, in the, in, in the, in the Buffalo media, but they're, they're, you know, it's not about the players credit, you know, not doing it well. It's Rex Ryan's system is awful and not, you know, not up to speed in the NFL, not taking advantage of the, of the personnel they have and, and on and on and on. And I know, you know, we've, you know, this has come up before, but in, in college basketball, college sports, especially, but especially college sport, that college sports, but especially college basketball. There's a real cult of the coach, and you know it's the old thing. The play, the coach stays. The players kind of revolve, especially now, and you know coaches kind of have their own little kingdoms, like Coach K and Bayheim right. at Syracuse, and, and and so you know a lot of these, you know, a lot of the bigger name coach, you know, so the, the, you know, and that attitude I think trickles down from, excuse me, the sort of tenured coaches on on right. down on down through the profession. And it does, you know, it, yeah, it does seem weird that, you know, strategy isn't, um, isn't discussed more. And I would frankly, you know, maybe it's something I can teach my students in sports in my sports writing class, but, you know, w- you know, learn the strategy and analytics so that you can feel comfortable well, yeah. you know, addressing the coach to it. And, 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 and you know, and, and saying, why didn't you you know, and, and, and to ask, and to ask, and, those, it, and it doesn't even have to be a negative question. It could be, right. why was this done? You know, right. what's what like, what what's the thought process behind this? But but a lot of the questions that I hear, a lot of the questions that I read on transcripts, mm-hmm. it, they're not any more probing than talk about why this player did this, right? Or you know, or um, did you feel like this player was going to have a good game tonight? Like these, these yeah. are these are not strategy questions. It's and 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 in the and in the post write ups and the blogs that get written and the podcasts that get recorded, um, there there's a real hesitancy to to you know to broach these topics directly, and it's a very very strange sort of mentality to me. Because and I again I understand why it's there, but mm-hmm. but. But I only understand why it's there because it's a legacy that has been developed over time because these coaches have developed this this kind of perspective where, well, we're going to be here and, and the media knows that. And so they're going to kind of kowtow to our, our wishes on this. And it's like, well, part of that is because those questions haven't been asked before. So it's like we're just right. continuing to, you know, dig the, ma- dig the ditch deeper and the mound gets built higher. Like it's really fascinating. Yeah, and, 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 you know, I think of, I, I mean, I don't know if it's a counter, but I always think of like, so you think of someone like Beheim at Syracuse who always plays a 2-3 zone. Like that's the thing, that, that, that's his thing. And, and, and in a weird way, like that takes such a strategic element out of your line of questioning because you're not going to say, you know, Jim, did you ever think about going mad when they were draining all the, all the three pointers? Cause, 
no, they play, you know, they play, you know, they play two, three, they always play a two, three. Right. Um, and so asking that is just, you know, like the show that, that there's the difference between asking the legit question that you're going to get an answer and asking kind of like the showy confrontational question oh. just to kind of show off but how, it's you only, know, how much you think. But it's only, but it's only showy and confrontational because asking, you know, questions well, about strategy is considered verboten to some degree. Not, and like, no, I mean, and you, what you were about to say before I cut you off was like, you know, showing off how much you know about the game. Well, you're supposed to know something about the game. Like, that's the whole point. I, well, I, I, I disagree. I never think you should show off to an interviewer because well, no, then... I, I'm not, but I'm, but I'm, I'm not classifying it as showing off, I guess, is okay. my point. I'm classifying it as, this is my job. My job is to know whatever the sport happens to be, whether it's soccer or basketball or hockey or what have you. So, and, well, well, you know, what's interesting about that, I'm sorry, I cut you off, but it just came okay. to me, is, you know, and, and I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, traditionally, you know, for, you know, I'll talk print because that's my gig. So talk about print. You were writing about you were writing for a mass media. So you're writing for a newspaper. And so the the like predominant thing that one of the predominant attitudes and I and I value this in a lot of ways, but it speaks to our point here is that sports is about people. It's not about strategy. It's not about numbers. It's about people. I'm getting I'm I'm getting to something here. So I so sports is about people. And so I think along the way, and I'm completely making this up up off the top of my head. But I think along the way, we've become so, we as a sports journalism profession have become so enamored with that idea that, you know, any kind of talk about strategy and about like the strategic particulars, you know, why did you go to a one, three, one, three quarter court zone press there? What was the point of that? I think there's a, a real fear from a lot of more traditionally minded sports journalists that people don't care about that. They want a good story, that they don't care about the strategy that they're looking for people that they're looking for players they're looking for like like kind of personalities on that but i think that in our current digital environment that that's cha- that that's changed that there is a place for real kind of x's and o's strategic discussion i mean bill barnwell proved that when he was at grantland and in espn and really well i think he's the best in a football beat writer in the in, in, in the game and i think that you know one of the ways I've written about this before, but one of the ways that a, a news organization could set itself apart in sports coverage is by, you know, I borrowed this idea from Seth Godin, but focus on the nerds, right? Yeah. Focus on your on your sports nerds. And like now you can write about strategy more because right. you can have that. You can have a more you don't have to appeal to everybody. You can write kind of have a strategic point of view and think and, and think X's and O's and think and ask kind of more. And, and I, I like that idea that you have. I'm actually going to borrow it. You know, it's your job to know a lot about this game and not just about the people, but to know as you know, to learn about the game. And a lot of the questions you can ask, you know, like you said, it doesn't have to be confrontational. It can be, why did you go this? Because they had a reason. It might be wrong. It might have failed. But okay, let's understand as a reporter, why were you guys unprepared for the press? Yeah. Well, we didn't. We didn't. We didn't expect them to do it, and they caught us off. You know, they, coach would never say this because he's a coach. But you know, you could kind of infer like they caught it. They caught us off guard. They did it better than we expected. Blah blah blah. Whatever. 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 So you know, and you know, it, and it is. It, it all kind of gets back, I think, to. You know, this idea that this time in media is really it's a time of great disruption, but it's also a time of great opportunity for us to kind of look at all these assumptions that we have and how we cover things and what we cover. And um, 
and and challenge that. Boy, that was long. I'm no, done. but that's no. You 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 went exactly where I hope you were going to go. I I think we're at a point where it has. I think it has to change. You know, and we talk so much about the changing nature of sports coverage and how does it survive in an era where you just you don't need to like to some degree the people stories are becoming interchangeable you know and it's like that mm-hmm. you can we're saturated with people stories right now and there's this whole vast trove of of information available that you can tap that people aren't tapping Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I think you're right. You know, Barnwell's a great example of a guy who's tapped into that. Zach Lowe, I think, does a good mm-hmm. job with that with the NBA. And that, you know, people, people, you're like maybe slightly long, younger than us, but we're, we're on the top edge of the demographic. But mm-hmm. I think we've been like the reason that sites like Ken Palm and Football Outsiders and mm-hmm. um, a baseball prospectus, the reason those took hold in the 2000s was that people were starved for actual nuts and bolts. Yep. You know, I don't want to hear about, you know, Sammy Sosa's childhood. I want to hear about what makes him an effective player or what makes him not as quite an effective player as somebody else who maybe I should be thinking of as a more effective player. Like Mm -hmm. I want to, I want to understand those things. I want to understand why my, I want to understand why Indiana, despite having, you know, multiple all Americans on their basketball roster, hasn't made it past the sweet 16 in the last five years. You know I mean? Those are things that frankly, we don't tell by talking about the personalities on the team. Like maybe that right. plays a little bit of a part into it, but what really we need to be doing is talking about what's going on on the floor. And well, that's I- that to me is it's part and parcel. It's why I get frustrated when I hear people criticizing athletes, because to me, I've been listening to, to broadcasters and reporters criticize athletes for 35 years. And it's done. It does nothing because it doesn't tell you anything about what's actually going on. I mean, there's there's a hundred mistakes in every game. What wins and loses games is the overarching strategy generally that's that's being executed or not being executed, and that's something that needs to be addressed. Right. I mean, I would I, I would take you, take what you're saying from a slightly different angle. And again, going on this digital era is we don't have to pick. Do we t- do right. we focus on human or do we focus on numbers? You know. We can, we, there's space for both. We can do all inclusive. I think that, you know, the, the, you know, Sammy Sosa's childhood is a maudlin Olympic-esque example of it, but I think that there are, you know, we do want to tell good people's stories. We don't want to ignore those stories as I think we do that at our peril. And I think that, you know, there are a lot, a lot of interesting stories. You know, we're kind of saturated on it and I've got a blog post I'm working on on the whole hashtag long form thing but um you know there's a real you know i think there are real good stories to to tell but i i think you know there's nothing to be afraid of with looking at at at, at, at kind of focusing on strategy you know if i were if i were designing a a news a, a news organization's beat right now for like their main team i would love to have two beat guys a regular be- an, an analytics guy and like a locker room guy or, you know, and, and you know, locker room guy, tradi- you know, what, what we think of as traditional locker room type coverage analytics guy does analytics and, you know, you can flip flop them on both, but you know, we don't, you know, I, it, it, it comes back to, I think in media that either or mentality that was kind of the, 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 the scarcity of the, of the analog age. And in digital, it's, it's, we have abundance. You can do it all. And I think that, you know, you know, I think that we're moving into an era and an understanding that we can. It just takes, you know, 
the, the, the Titanic takes a long time to, to make that big U-turn. And, you know, I get it. I do. I really, I really do get it. And I, it just, but I, but I do get frustrated when I hear people not addressing those aspects of things. And, mm-hmm. and I'm like, you know, we really should be at a point where we're doing more with, right. with this. And, and I mean, and this is at the highest ranges of things, uh, mm-hmm. you know, so, so look, I, I'm with you. I understand it's a slow moving ship and I understand the mentalities of people who aren't asking those questions or aren't giving those sorts of commentaries. But I sit here as somebody who's interested in pushing forward the vanguard of sports journalism and sports commentary, and I say it's let's get going. Mm-hmm. So absolutely. Anyway, uh, yeah. Um, so on that note, I think we're we're out of time. So any I, any final thoughts from you? Um, I love the Girl Scouts, no matter what Galen says. <laughs> I think they're they're a fine organization doing great work, and I applaud all you girls and your hardworking effort. And ignore what my co-host says. Um, I'm, I'm also, uh, <laughs> also happy to see. Um, our, our, our two schools within eight spots of each other on real-time RPI. Indiana at 27 going up. Bonnie's dropping a little bit to, at, at 35. Both actually, you guys will make this. You guys are probably in the in the tour. Well, you won the Big Ten, so you'll be you'll. Yeah, we're like in like four or five seed range, right? Yeah, now. and uh, and uh, the Bonnie's there. Lenardi has us the last four out. Uh, Jerry Palm has us the first four in last four in in the playing game. So um, yeah. I need to uh I need to sit down. I have not I have been so like busy with everything. I have not done mm-hmm. a bracket yet. It's this is the worst year I've ever had. You um, you, you you do a predictive bracket? I oh, I do predict I've done oh. predictive brackets every year since I was 15. All right. Like before I was in bracketology before bracketology was even known as bracketology. Like I wow. I used You're a bracketology to, hipster. I I well, <laughs> but I was legitimately in it before it was cool. Like, you uh, know, like I mean, I didn't just like hop in right at the beginning. I was there before it started. Like, it, okay. yeah. So I, I, it's, it's a long standing uh, passion of mine and I just, I've regretted not having a, had a chance to do more with it so far this year. So, well, looking forward to that bracket. Um, we have some music topics for coming weeks. Um, and uh, this podcast, we've submitted it to iTunes for review. Hopefully the, the great people at iTunes get that published. So you'll be able to subscribe through iTunes going to go up on google play soon and you can always find us at uh sportsmediaguy.com and uh click the tab for the flip side on top and you can find all our episodes there and you can enjoy our stylish new intro music yes and the lo- and our logo we are we are we are full service now it's great we've got everything like but you know all we need is listeners now and that's where you folks <laughs> so anyway Brian, thank you, and thank you to all for listening, and we will catch you next week as we prepare for, um, I don't know what we're preparing for. I guess we're preparing for, for me to give the presentation that we're yes. doing at IAX uh, <laughs> in a couple of weeks. But, uh, no, we'll catch you folks later on. Uh, for Brian Moritz, I'm Galen Clavia. We'll talk to you all on the flip side. So long, everybody.